I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alan Brandt, who's a professor of the history of medicine at Harvard Medical School and dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. In honor of the journal's 200th anniversary, Professor Brandt has written a perspective article about the journal as a window into the history of medicine, science, and society. Professor Brandt, to begin before the beginning, what sorts of medical journals were there before 1812, and what was the model for the New England Journal? Well, there were really quite a few journals, and in the 16th and 17th century, there had been very few transactions of the Royal Society in London and some very elite journals that typically were not read by physicians, but were read by clerics and intellectuals and thought leaders in England and in the colonies. But by the early 19th century, um, there was increasing interest in publishing in general and the idea of developing medical journals in particular. So literally, a couple physicians might decide, let's start a journal, and they often had aspirations about that journal, about promoting their particular therapeutic approach or a discovery that they had had. And so there was this proliferation of journals through the 19th century, especially in the first half of the 19th century, and almost all of them came and went on fairly short order. So very few of them turned out to be sustainable, significant, and revenue-producing. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask when I began to really look into the history of the journal and its impact and the kinds of things we could understand about the history of medicine from the journal was what accounts for its stability and success over these last 200 years of publishing that made it different from the typical journal, which it might have appeared to be when it printed its first edition in January 1812. And what answers did you come up with? What has made it different? Well, it's a complicated question because in a way you might think, well, our audience is really other physicians like us, and if we can appeal to them, you know, we will be successful. But so many of the vogues in medical therapeutics and in medical systems and in approaches to diagnostics um, came and went pretty quickly in the 19th century, that having a wider view of problems of disease, approaches to them, avoiding um, sectarian notions of medical practice, and thinking widely about sort of best practices with a very skeptical outlook um, really turned out to attract a sort of wider audience. Certainly, as you suggest, a fundamental purpose of the journal has been to provide information to physicians. Has the kind of information the journal provides changed over the years? Well, it has changed radically, both the kind and the type and the focus. And I think, you know, early medical journals like the New England Journal um, tended to report um, individuals' experiences in caring for patients or in observing disease and how they alone could collect data. And I think that was characteristic of the early history of the journal in large measure, and you see interesting 
early forms of experimentation and data collection. But the journal was highly empirical from that point of view. And the, the source of medical authority was often in the individual um, physician author's ability to um, accurately describe symptoms of a disease and, and collect from a group of patients that he might have seen over time. And there's a revolution in our approaches and what I might really call our epistemologic assumptions about what constitutes medical knowledge. That would be more characteristic of the turn of the 20th century and the rise of what I would call biomedicine um, in some distinction from um, medicine or sort of clinical observation. If I'd been a physician in 1812, what other sources of information would I have relied on? Um, it's a really interesting question, and we can't completely know. But I think you would have relied on some of your physician colleagues, some of whom were proximate and you know relatively nearby in a city like Boston, but some of whom were scattered. And of course, this has always been one of the problems with medical knowledge is that clinicians can be very isolated in their communities of practice. And so how do you reach them um, in those places where they work and see patients? And so there's a lot of independent thinking on the part of early 19th century physicians and not always a great opportunity for them to communicate and learn from one another. So there were books, for example, that would be passed back and forth among physicians and borrowed from their libraries. Physicians were often most esteemed and prestigious. If they had more books, it was a sign that they had access to more information. And journals would come to play an increasingly important role. Um, but books were deemed more important because they had the sort of stood the test of time. And of course, we know in medical science, standing the test of time is obviously one measure, but you don't want to be caught in old practice. And journals began to push the margins of new knowledge, new ways of thinking, um, that the slowness of book publishing and reading um, could never really keep up with. So the journal really became the form in many ways, as opposed to the book. But before that, the book would have been the principal way you might have learned about how you want to approach patients and what you want to do. And you would probably have apprenticed to another physician who would have been your mentor and guide. But then your knowledge would be static to some degree and just based on your own observations. And one of the things we know is isolated physicians who don't have opportunities for continuing education and rethinking approaches to problems um, inhibits our ability to develop new ways of approaching problems of disease and patients. So what's the relative value of the medical journal been over the past two centuries? Uh, you describe it against the book 200 years ago. Uh, well, what's, it, uh, what's its competition now and how has it uh, played out over 200 years? Well, there is some competition now. I tend to think, um, and historians generally avoid counterfactuals, but take away the journal literature um, from the last 200 years of, um, of medicine. And I can only think that we would be much more impoverished in our ability to effectively address problems of disease. So my own notion, especially after this deep inquiry into the New England Journal that I've undertaken over the last year or so, 
and my own observation of the roles that journals play in the life of clinician researchers and healthcare providers is that journals have a profound place in how we constitute medical knowledge and its authority. Um, that said, there have always been competitions to um, journals, even journals of exceptional quality. And right now we're seeing the dissemination and accessibility of medical knowledge on the internet in new and radical ways that many of which are enormously positive for scientists, for physicians, and for patients and the public, and also don't have some of the um, the structural architecture of um, evaluation, peer review, um, the characteristics of, um, of tested knowledge that have been at the core of um, academic scientific journals of the last century or so. So that's this is a very big question in sort of the future of what constitutes authoritative medical knowledge. You discuss in your article how the journal was affected by social and political trends. To what extent has the journal been consciously engaged in policy, politics, and social change over the years? Well, I think it's been very consciously engaged in the role of medicine and science in the public sphere and public policy, questions of educational policy and professional policies for um, physicians. And there are really two interesting things. One of the things I wanted to raise in my article was the character of that very explicit and conscious engagement on the part of the editors in seeing medicine and medical practice as part of our social world and its significance that would have big impacts in policy and in health outcomes. And there seems to be a strong awareness of that. And then the other thing I was doing in the article is saying, where are they not always aware of the um, introduction of social and moral values that are constituted within a society at a given moment in time? And I always find myself asking my students, my medical students, my historian students, if you're reading an article and you don't have the date on it, you know, how would you date it? And can you come up with a rough estimation of when this would have appeared? And sometimes you can use, well, here's where scientific knowledge is, so I put it here. But other times you find instances of what today we might call, you know, social bias or prejudice or some indicator of how people perceived one another at that time. And that would be your mechanism of dating. And so I was interested in that problem as well. Um, because, you know, we sometimes assume that the, the gender relationships or attitudes about race or immigration, um, you know, pe people writing at that time just took the assumptions of their moment and, 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 you know, reiterated them in their writings in the journal. And it can be very revealing of social hierarchies, attitudes and values. And one of the ways that I use um, a journal like the New England Journal in my own research is to use it to constitute those moments of very powerful social values that can only sometimes be seen post hoc but reveal deep cultural assumptions of the moment. So I have a few examples in my article 
um, of that kind of of that kind of thinking. Certainly, one of those in what you describe as a, a permeable boundary uh, of science and medicine is the example of eugenics, which made its way into scholarly writings on medicine and public health. How did the journal get involved in eugenics, and did it look at both sides of the issue? Um, it only looked at both sides of the issue to some minimal extent. And one of the things I think that um, a reader of the journal in the teens and 20s, maybe sometimes going back a little bit farther and going a little bit closer to our own time, would find is that the assumption in the journal was that eugenics was scientific it was modern, it was cutting edge, it was the introduction of our knowledge of genetics into the public sphere, that the highly educated elite physician would, um, that the eugenics ideals would appeal to him, and I say him because the, the profession was largely constituted um, by men at that time. And so, you know, today, a lot of these eugenic ideas are obviously discredited. And my purpose in raising the notion of eugenics is not to condemn those people, but to show how powerful those ideas were at that moment that they could be shared and assumed in an uncritical and in a largely uncontested way. And I think that's really quite fascinating because it reminds us um, that ideas like eugenics that, you know, 20 or 30 years later would appear to us to be appalling um, could be so um, popular and consensual um, within a medical and scientific elite at a particular moment in time. And those are sobering insights, but they also remind us that we're always subject to assuming that our moment and the way we've organized knowledge and practice and policy you know, seems self-evident. When we have the opportunity to look back at it, we can often see that our assumptions about the way um, knowledge and the world are organized are often deeply socially um, influenced. And I think that's a key aspect of doing this kind of historical work. Do other examples leap out at you from the 200 years of the journal? Well, I mean, some of the ones that are just most obvious is, you know, can women be physicians? Can they be effective? Um, is there something about being a woman that would disqualify them? Assumptions that it's very hard to um, be a physician if you're a woman and you want to have a family, which continues in some ways to be the case, but in some ways at in the middle of the... 20th century was deemed disqualifying because how would we have a nation of mothers and a nation of women physicians? And so, you know, these types of today we might call them biases, but at the time they were part of, you know, natural assumptions about the order of things, um, you know, do jump out. And I have a short quote from a physician who did a surgery on a woman under anesthesia. And he mentions that she was probably dreaming of her, you know, Irish harvest labors as the procedure unfolded. And, you know, I had this thought, well, that wouldn't make it through the editorial process at the journal today. And that's good that it wouldn't. But just, you know, a kind of familiar 
um, set of assumptions about social place, um, the relationship of ethnicity and race. And you see growing sort of liberal concerns about race and the problem of the Negro, for example, in the 30s and 40s in the journal. But no, you know, adequately progressivist assumption about, you know, how have we organized our world on certain kinds of essential biological assumptions that today are completely discredited. Um, some of the concerns that were raised in the journal in the 50s and 60s about human experimentation would today not pass muster of the weakest institutional review board, but were part and parcel of the way a doctor might assume, I'm going to do an experiment on this patient, no problem. So we learn a lot about change and the assumptions. And I'm not a historian who wants to go back and you know, um, make moral judgments about, you know, um, our ancestors in this instance, but I want to learn f how they constituted their world and how different it is from our own and use insights about that to, you know, critically investigate how we might observe our own world and some of the types of assumptions that we don't at first observe when we're observing ourselves. You note that one of the journal's primary missions has always been education in the profession. How has the educational role of the journal evolved? Well, I, I, I was struck by what an important role it is because we have many medical and scientific journals that have not centered attention on this professional ethic of um, providing knowledge to the next generation um, of professionals. and. I think it's very impressive from an early time. The journal was both interested in the educational institutions of medicine and health, but also more interested than many journals in its own role as an educational technology or device. And that's, that's a very impressive and admirable quality of the journal. And I think it was I link this in some ways to the tension that emerged in the 20th century, a kind of moment where the journal could have gone in different directions. And there's a very significant debate in the journal about generalism and specialism and the idea that more medical and scientific knowledge would be increasingly technical. But it always tempered its move into more technical um, medical knowledge and specialized issues in medical science with an idea about how would those be applied in some general framework. And that was really, I think, how it saw its educational mission, that it would publish, you know, cutting-edge scientific or medical um, discoveries in a s area of specialization, but then also ask the question, what is its significance for um, a general um, view, a foundational view of medical knowledge. And I think there's always been a tendency in the journal to be most drawn to those scientific developments that have a linkage to um, notions of general knowledge of problems of health and disease. So balancing that and negotiating that relationship is what I think kept the journal from developing into, you know, one of the specialty journals, which is could have been one of its courses in the 20th century, or just being a general 
um, journal of reviews and um, synopses of medical knowledge, which we also see among the medical literatures today. Despite the enormous changes in medicine and in the journal over the past 200 years, you talk about the continuities in the journal's treatment of uh, its subject. I suspect that historians don't like to talk about the future either, but um, is your sense that those continuities will continue? Um, I think there will be continuities, and we're obviously living through a phase of the most radical changes in technology and in how we understand the processes of disease, and we're seeing really, you know, play out now very rapidly the molecular and genetic revolutions in medicine and science, and um, the notions of regenerative biology and stem cell research, and their very quick potential clinical application. So we're at a moment of just, you know, ferment and radical excitement about how we will be able to manage um, very serious diseases in the future. And we lived through a period of, you know, remarkable um, progress in terms of our ability to successfully treat, you know, very difficult diseases. So I am deeply appreciative of that. But I think the continuities are really centered um, on the notion of these questions will not be easily resolved. There will always be questions of disease and there will always be problems of human suffering. And I found as I was reading this that as distant as we are, you know, from John Collins Warren and the founders of the journal and the very few um, therapeutic opportunities that they, that they had, that there are certain fundamental moral and social values about trying to bring knowledge um, to human benefit that ought to be at the center of the journal and to an impressive degree have. Thank you, Professor Brent.